Well, good morning, fellowship. Would you stand and let's sing this song about God's faithfulness together. From the wilderness, you brought me home again. You have and always will. From the lowly pit, you hold me up again. You have and always will. You have and always will. Come on, let's sing this together. You give hope.
your faithfulness sustains what you begin it has and always will your faithfulness it keeps us in your hands it has and always will you can have a seat Well, good morning, fellowship. It is genuinely good to be able to worship together with you this morning. We are glad that you're here. Hey, if you are with us for the very first time, thank you for honoring us and by being our guests. Let me just tell you, there is no expectation of you. We just want you to, to just sit and be a part of the worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we'd love to meet you. We're not going to hunt you down. We're not going to uh, you know, ask you to embarrass yourself and identify yourself, but we'd love to meet you. We've got some really friendly folks that are out in the foyer after service that if you'd like to just come and say, hey, first time here, I'd like to, to learn more about uh, how to connect or whatever, we'd love to have that conversation with you. So again, thank you for being here. For those of you who are our regulars, we just want to say thanks. It's good to see you. Uh, glad that you're here. So, summer's always interesting where we have these uh, rotating schedules, opportunities to go and travel or whatever, so we never know whose faces are going to show up on a, on a summer Sunday morning, so it's good to see you. Glad that you're here. Um, one of the things I love about fellowship is the heart of generosity that our people have, that you have, and uh, so we've been participating for years with Samaritan Community Center in, in their opportunities and their efforts to serve and bless people in our community. And we're participating with them in our backpack drive. Uh, we have a bin out in the foyer, and there's stuff that uh, school supplies that they'd like for us to get and put in that bin. If you're like me, though, and you forget to go to the store and get those things, you can actually go to Samaritan Center's website, and you can give online through there. Uh, where you can actually, uh, there's a link there where you can actually buy the stuff and have, have it shipped to them. So, whichever way works best for you, uh, thank you for your generosity. Another thing that I really have, have just enjoyed watching Fellowship do is we have, as part of our standing regular financial uh, structure, we have a disaster relief fund that our elders keep money in, and, and, and we use that to bless people. And then periodically, when something arises, a need arises, we'll, we'll put the word out to you guys, hey, the disaster relief fund is open if you'd like to give to that. And when you do give to that, when we open it up and say, hey, we're giving for this particular cause, everything that is given during that, during that period of time gets given out to whatever that cause is. And so recently, uh, when the war started in Ukraine, we opened that up and said, there are so many people who are being affected by this and refugees, and we want to give you an opportunity to be a blessing to some of those people, uh, and you've given generously, and we wanted to let you know uh, just to see some of the people, one of the families that your gift has, has blessed. So watch this video. <laughs> Мы коротко хотим рассказать историю, как мы оказались в Португалии. 24 февраля в 6 утра мы проснулись от того, что в 8 километрах от нас взрывались ракеты. То есть небо, смотря в окно, небо было все в вспышках и все вокруг взрывалось. Мы сели в машину и просто уехали, то есть ну, не было даже каких-либо раздумий, и таким образом мы оказались в Португалии. 
Здесь нам очень помогала семья Марты. Мы ей очень благодарны за это. Это не просто, когда ты понимаешь, что приедет семья, которую ты не знаешь. Это не просто принимать гостей. Поэтому мы очень благодарны ей. Благодарны также вам, кто смотрит это видео, кто участвовал. Кто участвовал в помощи нам здесь. Мы очень благодарны вам. Спасибо за помощь, мы этого никогда не забудем, что вы делали для нас. Может быть, когда-нибудь увидимся, может нет. Всего доброго, до свидания, пока. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. As I've studied this passage this week and I've, as I've meditated on this word, something that continues just to jump off the page for me is is the fact that Jesus' followers are casually eating dinner with him after he's just raised a dead man back to life. And it's this juxtaposition of Jesus proving that he is God, proving that he is creator of the entire universe and that he is sovereign and in control and holy and righteous. But he's also there with them in a room, casually eating at a table. It's this idea that the God that we serve and worship is so is so grand but he's also personable and he's loving and he desires to dwell with us and this passage reminds me of of the worm the words of of the psalmist whenever he says you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows surely goodness and mercy will follow me all my days, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So fellowship, I encourage you, whatever you're walking in with this morning, whatever you're bringing with you, whether it be grief or hurt or pain, or whether it be joy or a spirit of, of celebration, Jesus is ready to meet you at the table. And not always is this big, grand and righteous and holy God, which he is, but also just as a friend, just to be with you, just to dwell with you. So this morning, I ask, as we come to the feet of Jesus in worship, can we do so with a spirit and a heart of adoration? Would you stand and sing with us?
years have passed away Your love has stayed the same Your constant grace remains cornerstone The things that we thought were dead Breathing in life again You cause your sun to shine on darkest nights For all that you've done we will pour out our love This will be anthem song Jesus we love you oh how we love you you are the one our hearts adore sing the hopeless the hopeless have
We love you, and this morning, we give you our song, we give you our attention, and we work to give you our whole selves. Lord, this morning, as we give you our offering, as we give you our tithe, we pray that you would use it to expand your mission in this world, to expand your kingdom, but also to work in our own hearts to make us look more like you. We love you, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.
so sure and steady my hope is held in your hand when castles crumble and breath is fleeting upon this rock i will stand upon this rock i will stand sing glory 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 we have no other king but jesus lord of all we raise the anthem our loudest praises ring we crown him lord of all
better, better than anything we can imagine. God, you're all that we need, and uh, we're grateful to worship you this morning, and God, I pray that as we go into your word, we see more about who you are, that it would become even more clear to us how good you are, um, and how much you love us, God, and I pray that we would be compelled to worship you with our whole lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A thief a leper and a dead guy walk into a home. Sounds like the setup for a very offensive Christian joke. Uh, it is not. It's actually a scene in Scripture uh, that we see. No joke, no punchline. And in fact, these aren't the only people who walk into this home. There's some fishermen. There's a tax collector. There's two sisters. And there's actually the Son of God himself. All at this one dinner party. It's like the most incredible guest list in history. And it's the setup for one of these encounters with Jesus that we've been studying. And just as a reminder, here's what an encounter is. It's an unexpected meeting with someone or something. So it's worth noting that any interaction with Jesus is probably going to be an encounter because when you interact with the Son of God, you're going to experience something unexpected. And we've been studying uh, we're, we're in a, the third of our mini-series. We're going to study seven encounters. This is the fourth one uh, that we will get to. And this one is going to be one of the, the oddest in a way. It's got really cool hidden details. You have to dig a little bit. You've got to look at, at overlapping uh, accounts. There's foreshadowing. There's greed. There's joy. There's sacrifice. There's a lot. And it's all packed into eight Verses, which I am thrilled about, okay? That may mean not a lot for you, but as a teacher, not to have to get through 50 verses this morning, I'm pretty, pretty excited. And so we're going to slow down. We're actually going to look a little broader at some things too um, and really get to kind of dive deep into this. But it actually gives us some time for an aside to start. As I've been studying uh, Jesus, the life of Jesus through this 21-week series, I've started to notice some trends. And one of the most interesting to me is how Jesus lives out grace and truth. Now, first of all, I've noticed that it is not grace or truth ever with Jesus. It's always grace and truth. It's not a choose your own adventure. Just pick one of these, whichever you like most, go after that one, let the rest of the world handle the other one. It's always in perfect balance with him. Now, for us, when we walk through life, all of us have bias and a worldview that we put on, a lens through which we view the world in every situation we walk into. Hopefully, that bias comes from us being 
so into the word of God daily that it's transforming our minds, that it's renewing our minds, and it's helping us actually see the world through the way that God would see it. But realistically, that's not always true. And we have traditions, we have personal triggers, we have fears, we have news stations, we have a lot of things that depending on our, um, our lives and the way that we've grown up and the way that we live, that's going to affect the way that we view things. Jesus doesn't have that. He sets the standard and has that perfect worldview as the Son of God. So as I've gone through these encounters, this is one of the lenses I've tried to look through and go, okay, how does Jesus balance grace and truth? Here's the trend that I've seen. The closer someone appears to be to Jesus, the more truth he extends to them, okay? It's not that he doesn't show grace, but the more truthful he can be. The further someone appears to be from Jesus, the more grace he extends in those conversations when he presents that, that truth. Now think about it, right? Who is he most straightforward with? The disciples, his followers, the religious leaders of the day? Who is he most graceful with a lot of times? Well, it's these quote-unquote sinners where he asks good questions. He invites them in. He doesn't disregard truth, but he, he couches that, that truth presentation in a lot of grace. We've seen it with the woman at the well. We've seen it with the woman caught in adultery, and it was, both of those were very unexpected as far as that interaction with Jesus. We see it in encounters that we're not even studying in the book of John. One that comes to mind would be with Zacchaeus, right? When Zacchaeus sees this, this guy, this short guy, up in a tree so that he could see, he knows he's a sinner. He doesn't say, hey, man, you are living a lie. You are a thief. Change your ways. He looks at him. He says, get down, and let's go have dinner. Now, I'm sure truth was presented in that, but there's this method that I see Jesus doing. And here's what I've realized. I think I'm wired to do the opposite. That the closer someone is to me, like, hey, we're, we're believers in here. We follow Jesus. Like, let's just show some grace, man. It's okay. You can say that. You can do that. Not a big deal, right? We're all believers at the table. And then when I see someone who might not know Jesus, my tendency is to be very harsh with truth. This is what truth says. Take it or leave it. But Jesus actually does the opposite. And what I've realized is if we don't learn to balance both of those well, we will end up creating an us versus them mentality with the world that actually will lead us away from influence and more to isolation. And so we study Jesus and we see how does he do this? And, and what if it's actually godly grace that leads people to understanding God's truth? And it's God's truth that we present that leads them to understand grace, that it's not about elevating one over the other, which would lead us to legalism or to license, but it's actually about holding both of them in perfect balance, which will lead us to the cross, because that's where we see both on full display. Now, we are Christ's ambassadors. We do have to figure this out. I don't know how to do it. The best thing I know how to do is to study Jesus and see the way that he interacts with people and fashion my life after that. So that's what we are doing this morning. Like I said, we're in week four of this third mini-series of encounters. The first one we had was with Nicodemus, and then the next three, including the one today, are actually individual interactions between Jesus and a woman. And we consistently watch the Son of God take the cultural norms regarding women of the day and cross them, not in an inappropriate way, but in a way that elevates the dignity of the women in his lives and actually brings them into the gospel narrative. And he does it over and over 
and over again. The more you see and study Jesus, the more you'll see this gentleness towards an elevation of women. And this encounter with Mary of Bethany is another example of that. Now, some of you are, are in the process of having children. Maybe you're naming a baby girl this year or something like that. My guess is that if you name a baby girl in 2022, that name is probably going to end in the letter A, all right? Olivia, Emma, Amelia, Ava, Sophia with a PH, Sophia with an F, Isabella, Mia, Luna, Camilla, Gianna, Ella, Aria, Layla, all in the top of the list, right? There is a pattern. I couldn't find social security data for the first century to figure out how people named folks. But if you read scripture, my guess is that if you were naming a baby girl, what was one of the names at the top of the list? Mary. There are a lot of Marys in scripture. This is not all of them in the New Testament. But these are the three we see highlighted the most. And when I study, I get very confused. So let me just explain briefly about these three. You know who this first one is. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had an incredible role. But as a teenage girl, she became pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit. And her main job in life was to raise the Son of God, to feed him, to wipe his butt, to do all the things that a mom has to do, which is just nuts to think about that like her role was to help raise the son of God. It's crazy, very important part of the gospel narrative. Mary Magdalene, she was actually the one that Jesus drove demons out of. She was a part of the resurrection scene at the tomb. She was one of his followers and a key witness throughout his life to some of these big salvation story moments. She was there most of the time. Then we have Mary of Bethany, who we're looking at today. Of Bethany is because that's where she's from, that's where she lived, and we get a couple of references of Mary of Bethany in Scripture. There's a story in Luke where Jesus goes to the house of Mary and Martha. That is this Mary of Bethany. And you see that interaction where Martha serves and Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. Y'all know that one probably. Well, a couple weeks ago, we studied the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Lazarus is Mary's brother. And so we see that interaction uh, with Jesus and her and Martha through this whole scene uh, of that raising from the dead. And then we get this third major interaction this morning, which is going to be at this dinner party. This is our third time covering Mary of Bethany just in this John series. We had resurrection in the life during the I Am statements, where Jesus says that to Martha in this conversation, um, in this scene with Lazarus. We had the raising of Lazarus, and now we have this one. And guess what? I've taught all three. Uh, these are the ones I've been assigned. So the Lord is trying to teach me something about this woman and the life that she lives. And so I've learned quite a bit as we've uh, prepped for this one. But here's three contextual things to know as we head into John chapter 12. I told y'all we get to slow down and cover a lot before we get into these verses. So to know where we're at in chapter 12, I want you to see a couple of things at the end of chapter 11. Number one is that the people, the chief priests, the Pharisees are now trying to kill Jesus. It's no longer we don't like this guy, we're kind of scared of this guy, what could this guy do? It's we have to get rid of him. So the, you've got this kind of transition chapter of John chapter 12 from Jesus' public ministry into his private uh, moving towards the cross. And so this is, this is where we're at. Notice in verse 48 the why. I think it's very, very intriguing. They're saying if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The people in charge were scared of losing control. They were scared of losing this nation that they had kind of come to control. 
And so their goal, out of that fear of losing that, was just to pinpoint the culprit, whoever they could identify that might lead to this, and absolutely get rid of them. That's another reminder that fear is a great friend and often a terrible steering wheel, and it led them all in the wrong direction because of that fear. But that's the context, and so it causes Jesus, context number two, to no longer walk openly among the Jews. Now, again, this is not done out of fear. This is done in the sense of he's always talking about God's timing. My time has not yet come. My time, my hour has not yet come. And he's walking in the Father's will to get towards the cross. And if he walks publicly right now, they will kill him instantly. But there are other things, other things in Scripture that are recorded that have to happen first. So it's not out of fear. Um, He's doing that to align with the Father's will. And it's all leading up to this Passover. There's a timing key here at the end of 11, at the beginning of 12, where it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And what's happening is Jesus is going to get crucified at that time. And it's, this is all one big story. And so when you look at John chapter 1, we actually see a foreshadow of this. It's one of my favorite scenes in Scripture where John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. Y'all know this one? He tells everybody to stop and to behold because who's coming? The Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And it was Jesus. And so that moment at Passover is almost here. And so that leads us to this anointing story, this this dinner party in chapter 12. Now, if you've read all four Gospels, you'll actually see a very similar story in each of them. And usually the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, usually those have a lot more overlap. But when I've been studying this one, the, the one in Luke seems to be a different woman in a different city at a different time, a different setting altogether. Uh, Matthew and Mark are very, very similar. And as I've studied those in comparison with John, it's my interpretation that these three are actually the same story. Uh, there are some differences. There are a few discrepancies. And some, some people are named in, in John. Maybe different people are named who are at the party. Uh, there's a timing discrepancy. Matthew and Mark say that it's all taking place two days before Passover. John says six days, and you can reconcile that. Um, it's not perfect, but in that maybe Matthew and Mark are organizing things thematically, and John is doing it chronologically. But the, the differences are too small for us to lose the heart of the story. And so I give you this to say, we're going to teach John chapter 12, but I'm going to bring in some details from Matthew and Mark to help give us a more complete picture. So here it is, John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So in chapter 12, we find this dinner taking place. It's right after Jesus has raised Lazarus, so in all likelihood, it's a celebratory dinner to say thank you for what Jesus had done. And you might assume that it's in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus because Jesus has spent time there before. But the details of Matthew and Mark actually tell us that it's in somebody else's home, the home of Simon the leper. So he's the first member of this dinner party. Now, we don't know much about this guy. We know that Jesus healed someone, healed a leper in Mark chapter one, but he wasn't named. And so it very well could have been Simon but we don't know. We do know that Simon must have been healed because you've got all of these people coming into his home and lepers had to live ostracized from the rest of the community. And so if all these people are coming to his home, he has to have been healed. And so picture today someone who the general religious community might ostracize. 
or might say is dirty or living a life of sin or needs to stay separated. And that's the person that Jesus goes to, his home, for this celebratory dinner. That small detail that we don't even get in in the John story, we have to go to Matthew and Mark to see it, has huge implications. Huge. And it's one that, depending on how you are with cultural Christianity and maybe living kind of a safe life, you might want to just skip over because this goes against what we want our lives to actually look like, kind of keep everything, you know, tidy and prim and proper. But these are the types of people that Jesus spent time with. This is where he went. This is his life. Now, I may be reading into this a little bit, I'll admit, but how many dinner parties do you think this guy had hosted? Probably not a lot at this point. And he's got the Messiah coming, the one who presumably healed him, but the one we know just raised Lazarus from the dead, and he's bringing a big group. So I assume this guy is probably equally as excited as he is anxious and nervous. And in come the disciples, right? This ragtag group of guys, you got some fishermen, tax collectors, like lots of different types of guys who, who come in, they've been following Jesus, they've just seen what he did in raising Lazarus, so their faith is increasing, but I assume as they're following Jesus, watching him do all this crazy stuff, they're tired and probably agitated and hungry and just looking forward to a meal. So they come into this guy's home, and one of them in particular is stirring inside. See, Jesus at this point has already begun contemplating if he actually, sorry, Judas, has already begun contemplating if he believes in this Jesus, if he wants to continue following him. He kept the money bag for the group, which we'll find out in a minute he actually would steal from it. And so everywhere he went, I assume there was some type of skepticism and uncomfortability with him because he was living in secret sin. And we all know what happens when you live in secret sin. You're always scared of the fear of that sin coming to light. So I I assume he's frustrated that they're at a leper's house. He's trying to figure out if he even wants to continue following this guy. And in walks Mary and Martha, the two sisters, who seem to go together quite a bit in Scripture. And in true Mary and Martha fashion, as we saw in the account in Luke of this other story of them with Jesus, Martha, what does she do when she gets there? She gets to serving. Simon, what do you need? Let's get this set up. Let's get the dinner going. We've got guests coming. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. She, she steps in to help. And it seems at the beginning of this story that Mary's kind of silent. We don't have words from her. I kind of picture her being still full of grief, but also joy at what has just happened with her brother, being thankful and still scared all at the same time. And I see her walking in slowly, maybe with a bag or something that she holds very, very close because there's something precious in it, and she takes a seat. Then you got this guy walking in named Lazarus, right? What what do you do when you see him walking in? It's probably still hard to believe. Like, is he going to disappear at any moment? Like, they're probably, like, touching him going, okay, he's real. He's here. Uh, But in true Lazarus fashion, if you remember when I taught that a couple weeks ago, we get no words from him in all of Scripture. We don't know what he's talking about, what what he's doing. Here's what we know. He is now reclining at the table with Jesus for this dinner. And the last time he was reclining, he was in a tomb. And now he's here with Jesus, probably somewhat mad that he got pulled out of eternity, but also somewhat grateful. 
to be next to the Messiah who has the power to do that. And then walks in the last one, Jesus. What do you do when Jesus walks into a room? Like, what is your reaction? I uh, was meeting with a couple of high school guys on Monday for some discipleship time, and one of them said, dude, last week we went to Branson and I saw Jesus. And uh, first part of me was like, you do see some crazy stuff in Branson. So let me give you the benefit of the doubt. And then I realized, okay, there's a play titled Jesus, and that's what he had seen. He had seen the play. But what would you do if you literally saw Jesus? And I know these people have seen him before, but they just witnessed him raise someone from the dead. My eyes would be locked on him the whole time. Like, what is he going to do next? How does he sit down? How does he eat? Like, what are his rhythms? And I look at this dinner guest list, and I go, man, what a party. Like, who would you want to talk to? We host parties at our house. Usually our goal is to keep our children clothed and to keep things from breaking. And so I look at this, and I go, I don't even know what I would do in that moment. Like, who would I talk to? I think it's probably one of those parties where either it was so loud because everybody's talking and telling stories about what they've just seen, or it is dead silent because people have no idea what to say. And they're like, hey, Lazarus, how's life? (laughs) Like, anything new? Like, what do you say? And so we actually get some words. We get a little glimpse. I assume there's a lot more than's actually recorded, and you'll see why. But we get a little glimpse, and it actually zooms in on three characters at this party, Jesus, Judas, and Mary. We're going to see not one, but two encounters in this story. It's a dual encounter between Jesus and Mary and Jesus and Judas, side by side, simultaneous, yet incredibly different. So here's the one with Mary. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, I love that word, nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. So go with me here, visualize this. They're sitting there eating, and quietly, Mary stands up. She makes her way to Jesus. And at that moment, if there was talking, I assume it went silent. And everybody's senses started heightening because they're seeing with their eyes something that's out of place. Why is she standing up and approaching him in this dinner? This feels weird. Whoa, why is she pulling her hair down? What is she, what is she taking out of her bag? Why is she getting on her knees at his feet? Like, what is happening? And then they hear with their ears the breaking of a stone flask, which had to stir something in them because they knew that signified there was something very, very precious and expensive in that jar. And sure enough, they begin to smell it. And it says the fragrance filled the whole house. They watched this woman take this liquid and pour it on, Matthew and Mark, I think, says uh, Jesus' head. John says his feet. So we assume that she just covered him. And then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And this, I want to sit in this moment because this is such a beautiful moment for a couple of reasons, probably more than I can name this morning. Number one, think about the financial implications that this had on Mary. Uh, pure nard, it was this, this was a fragrance that was made from some herb that was uh, from northern India, so it was very expensive. It had to be sealed and imported to get there and stay intact, and you would actually keep this and only open it on very special 
occasions. I was trying to think of what that might look like for us today, of like waiting on something to arrive, and then I thought, well, it's pretty much everything in COVID, and it gets there, and it's really precious, but maybe like an imported bottle of wine that's really expensive that you would hold for a special occasion. But even that doesn't do this justice because it said that what she was pouring out was worth a year's wages, a whole year's salary, which I know for all of us in here is a different number, but the same sacrifice. Imagine working for a whole year for one bottle of perfume and then dumping it out. What would it take? What would have to stir in you to do an act like that, to give up a full year's salary out of thankfulness and gratefulness to someone else? I actually don't like thinking about that because it makes me feel shame and selfishness, and I'm like, I hope I never have to make that call to give away a year's salary. But we see her give everything that she had in this moment. We don't know how long she had been holding on to this. When she got it, we know she didn't use it on her brother's burial, but she was keeping it for something special. And so in a human perspective, it looks like this is a bad financial decision. Number two thing that we see is there were prophetic implications in here. I don't even think Mary fully understood what she had just done. I think her act was out of pure love. But Jesus will tell us, she's actually anointing me for my burial. And in her sincere act of faithfulness, and kindness. She actually anoints the king of kings as he's getting ready to head to the cross. So we've got financial, we've got prophetic, but there's also personal implications here. If you think about how precious hair is, right? For some of us, more precious than others, right? We all try to, try to keep it clean. Some of us are just trying to keep it, and that's okay. But hair care is a multi-million dollar business that probably many of you might even work in, and, and we all know the value of something that's that close and that personal to us. And so in this moment, Mary's actually taking something that is precious to her and offering it as a gift to Jesus. And this is like a very intimate and vulnerable moment for her in the midst of that room to stand up and to go do this and to posture herself in that way. She's opening herself up to criticism, to financial hardship, but it's her love for Jesus and the person that he is that compelled her to give such a great gift. Fun note, this is the second time in basically a chapter that we've seen mention of some fragrance or odor. Do you remember the one that came just a couple of verses before all of this? When they're standing at the tomb and Jesus tells them, take the stone away, and Martha's like, no, 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 do not do that because my brother's been decaying for three days and it will smell terrible. And so th this group of people has gone from the fear of smelling that to smelling the sweetest smell, and it's filling the whole house. So what would that evoke in them? Probably different things for different people. And the one reaction we get in this story is from Judas. And here's what he says. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, great question, Judas, right? At first read, it actually seems like a valid question, a righteous question, even a godly question. It's not out of place, doesn't seem, because Jesus was constantly talking about caring for the poor, and Judas is going, couldn't this money have been spent in a different way, in a better way? 
Uh, I can identify with the question a little bit. I'm a very financially minded guy. I do our budget every day. It's a little bit overkill. But I'm always wondering, like, where is our money going? How are we spending our money? And there's two things as a father that frustrate me the most. When I come home and literally every light in the house is on, every one of them, I'm like, sons, you're all three in one room together. Are you, like, nervous that you might run into a dark room? Like, why? I don't even like country music, but every time I go full Trace Atkins mode and just start singing, every light in the house is on, and I turn off everyone and just stare at my children while I do it. But more than that, in this heat, when I see an exterior door cracked open, I lose my mind. Some people might see light coming in. I visually see dollars just blowing out out the door. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like, this money could have been spent on ice cream for you guys. Do I mean that? No. But in, in the moment, like, that's where my heart is. And so at first glance, let's give Judas the benefit of the doubt. What if he really is concerned for the poor? And he's going, okay, Jesus, this is great, but that's a year's wage. Think of what could have been done. And I'm very grateful that John, who has the full picture of what's going on here, actually inserts some hidden motives that we may not see. He said this, Judas, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in here. Judas asked a deceptively righteous question. But Jesus saw past the words to his heart. And, you know, Mary's act of selflessness here actually brings out Judas's selfishness. He wasn't concerned about the poor, but about his own salary about his own money, his own comfort. It was motivated out of greed. We see in the other accounts that some of the other disciples are stirred up to say, yeah, what a waste. And like that evil spreads quickly. But greed was the motivator here, and shaming this woman was the necessary side effect for him. Don't worry, Judas gets that loss of income back, right? Because what does he do soon after this? He actually goes and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was not a year's wage, but actually, according to Exodus 21, was the price of a gored slave, a slave that had been gored by an ox to death. And that's how Judas viewed Jesus. Now, both Mary and Judas, their, their actions communicate way louder than their words. In fact, we don't even really get words from Mary. We get this, this situation where we watch her humbly do this thing for Jesus. But Jesus, fully aware of both of their internal motives, he's going to respond. And he responds to Judas, and in doing so, he's responding to both because they're all still there together. So I want us to see all three gospel accounts of Jesus' response real quick. In John, he says this, leave her alone. Judas, leave her alone. And I could feel it getting a little serious and intense in that moment of, I hear you, and we both know that you don't mean what you're saying, and you have no idea what this woman has just done. Leave her alone. You see this statement from him right after that about the poor. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is not Jesus contrasting himself and saying, don't care for the poor. What he's telling them is, be in this moment. You will have the rest of your lives to care for the poor, and you should. But be in this moment. See what this woman is doing. See her heart for me. Be right here. We see in Matthew that he responds a bit differently, but 
similarly as well. He compares what the, what the disciples have said. The disciples are calling what she's done a waste. And Jesus says, what you call a waste, I call beautiful. She has done a beautiful thing for me because I know her heart. This, there's no waste whatsoever in what she is doing. It's a reminder to us that there are things that we might do in this life as followers of Jesus that just seem dumb to the world. Maybe financially dumb, time dumb, whatever it is, just seems like a foolish thing to do. But Jesus says, when you do those things for me, worship to the King of Kings, it is a beautiful act, no matter what others might say. And then I love this in Mark. He responds with, she has done all that she could. And this is not a belittling like, hmm, she tried. This is a, she just gave it all. Don't y'all see that? Like, some, or all give some, but some give all. Have y'all heard that before? That is Mary in this moment. She is literally giving everything to Jesus in this moment as an act of gratefulness, as an act of worship. And notice he says, this is the thing in this dinner that will be remembered, which rings true. We don't have a lot else. He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Because when you have an appropriate perspective on the generosity of King Jesus, you will give everything for him. There had to have been other words and other actions, but this is the one that was recorded for us. Now, I think there is something to learn about both Judas and Mary in this moment, uh, in this story. With Mary, I want to key in on, it says that she did what she could. That's what was memorable in this moment. She did everything that she could, and it makes me go, okay, as we apply this, what are the things that we can do? We may not be able to give a year's salary, but what can we do? And I think it could look like that child that is held right over here for an hour, just so a mom and a dad can have a sweet moment of worship with the Lord, or every dollar that's given in order to propel weekly ministry opportunities, every front door of your apartment or your home that you open so that people can experience a grace-filled and gospel-filled home, every prayer walk in your apartment complex or in your neighborhood, praying for the nations that are moving right here to Northwest Arkansas, that they would be able to see the true Jesus, every meal that's prepared for that grieving mom and dad who's lost a child, or a text to someone you know that's in need that just says, I'm coming over today, I know you're hurting, and I want to be with you. Every verse that you read with your children at the breakfast or dinner table just to teach them to live dependently on Jesus every single day. Now that list, which is just like a short list of things that we could do to serve the Lord, overwhelms me, if I'm being honest, right? There's all these things that we could do, and I'm reminded of what my late mentor, Scott Clark, told me a couple months before he passed away, which is, Hunter, do for one what you wish you could do for all. Just pick one. And that is honoring to Jesus. And so we see this extravagant love by Mary paired with this excessive greed of Judas up there. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about how we can apply that because I don't want to base my life of what Judas did or did not do. But it does show us that you can say all of the right things and be really close to Jesus and have a heart that is so far from him. And it's our heart and our actions that matter in this moment, not just our words. Our words are important. But this is, a, this is a series on encounters with who? Jesus. 
So I want to end with this. What do we see about Jesus in these two interactions? And I think it's really, really beautiful, and I hope y'all see it. We get this, this interaction of Jesus with Mary where, yes, she gives everything she has. She humbly goes before him. But as my wife, Alex, and I were processing this last night, she said this, and it hit me. She said, I love that Jesus' personality, his demeanor, his love, and his humility has made Mary comfortable enough to walk across the room in a room full of men and her sister and family and to give him this gift. He is kind, he is approachable, and he is humble. And we've seen that in this interaction with Mary and Jesus multiple times before, that he meets her exactly where she needs to be met. And he does it with a lot of grace and a lot of love. But how would he respond to Judas? Right? It, it seems appropriate that he would respond to Mary in this way. How would he respond to Judas? And it makes me think about something that's going to happen a couple of chapters later. That just as Mary knelt down to wipe Jesus' feet, Jesus actually humbles himself, the king of kings, in front of the guy that is about to lead him to his death. And he gets down and he washes his feet. And I can't help but think that Judas in this moment is seeing this image from earlier as this humble woman foreshadowed the humble king in her act of love and gratefulness. And so for us, whether you are the person who realizes that Jesus is literally everything I have and I will give my whole life for him, or you couldn't care less, or anywhere in between, Jesus, the King of Kings, actually offers himself in grace and in truth, humbly as a servant leader for you to know him and to walk with him. In this moment, I actually want to ask you guys to stand as we close today. No matter what your heart posture was coming in here, no matter what pains or fears or joys or whatever you may have brought in, I hope that you can be in this moment. We've got plenty of things we can do for Jesus, right, as we leave, but be with him here. And just as Mary sat and gave a simple offering of worship to Jesus, that's what we want to do is sing a simple song as Johanna leads us in worship to him. It's all about 
as I've been sitting with this passage too this week, I've been sitting with this question the hunter asked us. Like, what would be the most precious thing I could give to Jesus? And I mean, the obvious things like my time and my money, but I started to drill in a little bit and got defensive. What about the things I protect? Like my pride and my sense of safety and security. What about the need to be understood or respected? Am I really willing to lay those things before Jesus' feet? Not just to say, Lord, you are more valuable to me than even this, but as a statement that he's trustworthy with those things. So we're gonna sit in this vulnerable question together as a family gathered in honor of Jesus, just like these disciples were so many years ago. And we're gonna take on a posture of humility because sometimes it's just really important to physically represent what we're trying to do in our hearts. So if you're able to kneel, kneel with us. And if you would rather sit and open your hands as a symbol of receiving or giving to God, do that. If you wanna stand with your arms raised as a symbol of dependence and devotion to Jesus, man, that's, that's great. But whatever posture we take, let it accurately represent a humble approach to Jesus who is more worthy, more valuable than these things that we protect. Andrew's gonna play and we're gonna sing a little bit more and then we're gonna go in peace. But for now, let's just take on a posture of humility and reflect on this question. You are more worthy, you're more valuable, more precious than anything else we hold dear. We lay those things before you in worship and in submission to your Lordship.
fellowship, would you stand with me and declare this benediction over your family and yourself? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, if you wanna sit in this moment, we're gonna facilitate that. You can sit and linger. And if you need to move on, grab kids or move on to things in your day, feel free to exit quietly. Uh, Jeff and Chris are over here to pray with you if that's what you need this morning. And fellowship, it is just such a gift to pursue Jesus with you. Would you go in peace? <laughs>